Welcome to Tech Heroes for Good podcast. Here we chat with amazing women leaders all across the globe and share their incredible journey, passion and motivation. We talk about two things that we love the most, technology and sustainability. I'm your host Saurabh, a sustainability and a climate change advocate, and this is TSG. Let us begin. Our guest today is Sandra Vontegehart. She's the co-founder and CEO of Emerging Impact. With 10 plus years of experience in international humanitarian sector, she's an award-winning blockchain for social impact innovator. She has created the Unblocked Cash project, which is a live blockchain use case solution that enables faster, inexpensive, and more transparent financial aid for relief efforts. It won the EU Horizon 2020 Blockchain for Social Good Award. She's also a panel expert at EU Blockchain Observatory Forum. She provides expert advice on how the forum can strengthen the EU blockchain community, convey relevant information and create new synergies. Hi Sandra, very warm welcome to our show. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. You know, I'm really excited for this uh, interview with you and thank you so much for giving us your time. I have already informed our audience briefly about your professional journey. So could you help us sharing your personal life who Sandra is as a person? Yeah, of course. Um well, I guess the first thing is I'm currently living in Vanuatu in the Pacific Islands. Uh I am of Rwandan and American heritage uh and grew up all over the world and I am a woman in tech and I am probably one of the few <laughs> trained anthropologists uh and aid workers that now works as the CEO of a blockchain for social impact company. Great, that's a that's an incredible story. So now please help me in understanding as you rightly said that you know you've been a, a trained anthropologist with no technical background whatsoever and how you got selected as a Defcon 5 scholar among 50 other candidates to participate in Ethereum Foundation blockchain and cryptocurrency program. and how were you able to pull off the sorcery <laughs> i like that you use the word sorcery because that is a key area of study for anthropologists um and i'll circle around back to that but you know after spending you know about a decade in the humanitarian sector and you know learning how difficult it is to deliver payments to thousands of people you know after a crisis in places where the people you are trying to reach are definitely not the people where basic goods and services are available to or available for you know um and so when i heard about blockchain technology at a time when i was very frustrated with how slow and how clunky and you know not very innovative the humanitarian system was i I really started to think about how blockchain technology as something emerging could build digital channels and pathways to reach these people with a new infrastructure um in a context where we know that traditional infrastructures have failed them. You know, that was one piece that really inspired me to get into blockchain technology and being in the Pacific Islands a very geographically complex environment with a huge gap between people in need and the services that can reach them it's almost like being in this dispersed and distributed geography of islands did i start thinking about blockchain as 
a potential to solve a problem that I very really had and dealt with every day. Um, and I guess the second thing that I noticed in my work throughout, you know, the humanitarian sector is that people always transact. There are existing networks of trust and communication that you can go through, particularly in very rural and very remote communities. That sounded to me very similar to what the distributed ledger is as the blockchain, right? So it's almost like my thinking around cultural networks led me to ask the question whether there was a way to use those networks as pathways to digitalize assistance in areas where traditional infrastructure had failed. Uh, and so I then set on to build the Unblocked Cash project at Oxfam, which was written after listening to a podcast about blockchain, <laughs> you know, and being presented to my employer as a crazy idea that in a context where there was no other way to achieve my job objectives using traditional services, it became necessary to do. And I was very lucky to have a lot of people inspired in a new way of doing things in some of the most unsuspecting places in the world. And I think that's what caught the Ethereum Foundation's attention. Okay, that, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, as you also mentioned that your point of entry in this whole blockchain ecosystem and, and the whole idea of using blockchain as, as a tool uh, to address these, these humanitarian issues, because this is a very new technology, right? And this is highly revolutionary, but, you know, the, the only use case that people hear about it is basically the cryptocurrency space, right? But I'm pretty sure there has been, there, there, there are many use cases of blockchain uh, as a technology to be, you know, it can be used as, as an SDG accelerator. So where all do you see the, what can be the other use cases for this technology? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's loads. For me personally, with Emerging Impact, we work in the area of decentralized finance. And so this is the blockchain use case that has as its hypothetical that banking services can be fully digitized and accessible to anybody with a mobile phone. And that speaks to major areas of work like expanding financial infrastructure, increasing financial inclusion and access to wealth. You know, those are kind of the knock-on effect, effects of leveraging the infrastructure in that way. But I've also been very much involved in projects here in the Pacific, um, but also consulted on projects elsewhere that look at what blockchain provides in terms of traceability as an encrypted, secure, but still very transparent database um, that is effectively borderless, right? So this is all around supply chain tracking tracking the provenance of, you know, black pearls from the South Pacific, you know, or the provenance of ethically sourced tuna, or the province, for example, of uh, Vanuatu noble kava, you know, as something that is directly linked to the quality of the import, you know, and to the capacity of the country to be able to export um, is all about traceability, knowing where your food and your objects come from. Uh, and the last area where I see increasing applications really that are relevant for the global South in particular is where I speak about and emerging markets is all around digital ID. So there are many, many people in this world who do not have a form of identification, you know, or because 
you know, they were born in a rural area where those civil services did not exist, you know, or that I have been robbed of my identification in the case of stateless people. Um, and I really think there's a case both to digitize the process of providing identity by a state to its citizens, but to also start to look at ways to provide digital identity to people who otherwise do not have access to a source of identity, because ultimately that's what opens up the doorway to the rest of public goods and services, public and commercial goods and services that ultimately build wealth and reduce poverty. Um, so there's heaps. I mean, I could go on <laughs> forever about the use cases of blockchain, but I think those are the really big ones. And at Emerging Impact and the work that I do now, we are highly invested in this idea of delivering financial inclusion as a wealth accelerator, you know, um, by being able to digitally access those services in places where people don't have a bank near them. Absolutely. It, it uh, makes sense uh, in addressing the whole global south. But then I think it is it is of particular importance when it comes to a, a remote island like Vanuatu, wherein, you know, the, the community is always under the threat because, of course, it's on the ring of fire and uh, the, the climate, the, the climate conditions are extreme. And that uh, positions uh, the community at a very highly vulnerable uh, situation, right? And so, in that case, I was also reading about it that you know the 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 most uh, common way of saving that people save is that they dig a hole and then they put the money in the in the sand. Tell me if it's yes. if it's right. Yeah, yeah, it's true. People bury money in their gardens. Yeah, absolutely. I was shocked that you know this is the way that people uh, see it as, as a mode of saving, they won't uh, submit it in a bank or somewhere else. So tell me how, how uh, Unblock Cash project and uh, how is it helping? How is it, how is it uh, uh, using the black blockchain technology to address this issue and how are, uh, the, the community is able to use it? Yeah, well, I mean, the foundational basis for the entire Unblocked Cash project was the starting point of saying, well, if we want to be as sure as possible that this is usable by communities, it meets their needs, and they're designed in a way that is easy to understand, familiar to them, and that allows them to transact in their everyday lives, then we have to build the solution with them in the community, right? So we ran initial pilots of a beta version of a blockchain-based payment system with the startup Sempo um, and the support of Consensus in communities in Vanuatu. And we gathered feedback from local vendors on what their app should look like. We trained people how to use a smartphone, how to turn it on, how to turn it off. Um, and we even designed things like payment categories, you know, and the local language wording used in the app with the input of those communities. Um, and that really created trust at the beginning of the process, you know, because the communities then began to acknowledge how much the technology could connect them better to each other, you know, in their existing everyday behaviors and in a way that was inclusive of their voices. And I think that was really like the nut of success because the lesson from that for me that I apply in my work now is that, you know, civil society organizations, local NGOs, international NGOs and other development and humanitarian agencies have this extraordinary reach into the unreached 
communities of the world when it comes to conventional goods and services. Um, and that reach allows you access. And that access allows you to open up doors onto a future where we have inclusive solutions development in, the, in this fourth industrial revolu revolution that is blockchain, right? That we are building a future for ourselves that is reflecting the voices of those who need it most. Um, so that's really a model that I apply to all of my work, you know, at Emerging Impact. And it's a model that worked because when people are involved, that builds ownership, you know, and when that ownership is there and when the design itself is behavior-based, then people quickly identify a tool that will improve their quality of life. And I would, I bet anybody you would be hard pressed to find somebody in a vulnerable or remote community that struggles with poverty and access to services, not jump at the opportunity to be able to aid and trade the people around him that are closest to him or her, right? Human beings by their nature fundamentally recognize tools that will make their lives better. It's just a question of reaching out to people to make those tools accessible. Absolutely, and I think you can understand the value of that, uh, you know, being a trained uh, anthropologist. And, you know, my, my next question to you would be, because misappropriation of the funds is is an issue across the whole humanitarian sector, right? And I think uh, in 2012, uh, General Ban Ki-moon said that 30% of UN development assistance was lost due to corruption. And according to me, that's that's like one third of the pie is lost to the corruption. And that's a ridiculously high number. So so what do you think? Can blockchain-based solution provide a, a solution to this problem? Oh, definitely. Um, I just, before I get to that, I did, I realized on the last question, I did not actually provide you with a technical answer on how the system works in Vanuatu. So we can maybe circle back to that later, sure. yeah. if you like. Um, Sorry, what was the question again? No, and um, my question was that, you know, uh, misappropriation of the fund is ah, yeah. always an issue in the humanitarian sector, no? Yeah. And uh, how, how blockchain uh, technology is, is uh, providing this, all the blockchain-based solutions mm -hmm. are, are being helpful in this area? Yeah, so aid transparency. So one of the features of the system that we built um, you know, was better transparency, not only on all of the money flowing into the larger aid agencies, but exactly how that money was being used by whom and where for what to get a better idea of the impact of that assistance. So I think the first thing that blockchain offers in terms of transparency is the granularity of that data. That, you know, by its nature being like a universally constantly updated and shared database, you're able to move very small pieces of information from the beginning of when money is given to the moment money is dispersed very quickly across space and time and instantly, honestly, in our case. So the fact that you are able to do that begins to answer this eternal question of but what was done with the aid money. You know, because what people need to realize is that there are two kind of contributing factors to the lack of transparency in the aid system. One is the fact that, you know, the local organizations who are on the front end collecting the information that tells you what was done with your money are largely uncapacitated, right? They are just collectors of information. You know, they 
sometimes don't live in countries where they can access the skills to collect that information, but also, you know, they are not receiving a lot of money to do it. So by some estimates, only five to 7% of the aid money given is ever going to those national level organizations. And that's where digital tools can allow them to increase transparency and access aid more directly so that that efficiency in terms of the transfer of payments is improved. Um, but the second thing about blockchain that, well, I don't know if that's the second thing, another thing about blockchain that can not only provide transparency to the giving process. So with blockchain, if you're using a single application or interoperable programs on the same chain, that means that a donor can give money using, you know, an aid contribution app and actually receive an SMS or receive reports that have traced that contribution down to the dollar, down to the person who received it. And that would start to address seriously some of these questions around what was done with the aid money, because of course with transparency, you start to get accountability. So, you know, on the giving end, it allows you to track better what you're doing in very complex situations and to empower local organizations with tools that simplify complex processes to improve the information on the incoming end. But on the giving end, there's a lot to be said for the borderless transactions uh, that you see in the conversation around blockchain, particularly if payments are made in digital currencies. So it can go very far, you know, in my opinion. Uh, but I guess the question that I always ask back to the aid sector at this point is, are we all honest about how transparent aid agencies want to be? because there is a power structure and a hierarchy that is very colonial in the humanitarian space, you know, where you have developed nations giving the majority of money to agencies who are using the majority of that money to pay international staff, you know, in big offices around the world. And that shows a very top heavy infrastructure where in fact, the majority of funding given to humanitarian aid is being consumed by a top heavy elite of international agencies and UN agencies that are ultimately not trickling down the money that's been given, but who also do not reflect the people who are on the receiving end of that money. So there's also a need to decentralize the system itself. And for that, I think there might be some resistance. Uh, absolutely. And talking about uh, international agencies like uh, UN, so I think uh, uh, UN is also looking into uh, the blockchain-based solution as, as one of the modes of delivery. And I think, uh, if I'm not wrong, there are around five blockchain projects in United States, um, sorry, United Nations Innovation uh, Network. And one of the use cases that was really interesting uh, for me was that uh, they have, they're using... Um, uh, the, the iris scan as uh, uh, as as one of the modes of payment. So you, uh, the 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 person doesn't need any any card, which can be uh, you know uh, used by the warlords or anyone else. Uh, they are using the retina scan for for uh, uh, you know uh, uh, making the payment. 
So that that for me, it's it's amazing. And coming from from UN, a seventy five year old organization, experimenting with blockchain, it's it's mind boggling for me. So I'm pretty sure that you know, if if uh, a traditional organization as like like UN or uh, not just UN, and also for for that matter, if you talk about uh, in corporate sector. Um, Amazon is is using blockchain technology now. Their AWS system is is now uh, is is one of the uh, shoot offs of uh, AWS system. So so tell tell me how how do you think that you know all this all this uh, debate about uh, using uh, blockchain technology as one of the tools um, in in which which can be highly uh, you know game changing mm -hmm. so how do you think what what do you think in coming 5 or 10 years where where do you see blockchain technology ooh that's a that's a big question and you know i i don't try to see our future in terms of blockchain technology you know i do i try to practice what my what i preach and what i tell people when i'm training people in a community on how to use a blockchain based payment application is it's not how it was built, it's how you can use it, right? Um, so I really think about our blockchain future in the same way. I stay very focused on really staying true to a movement within the blockchain space of people that believe that we need to ensure that as we build new infrastructure, people typically excluded you know, and who can benefit from that infrastructure are given an opportunity to participate in that building so that they can build in their own image, right? So what I really want to see and that I'm very optimistic about, and I'm seeing more of this having moved into the private sector with emerging impact, is a movement of locally born solutions, startups, there are a huge diverse array of startups coming out of Southeast Asia, you know, coming out of Sub-Saharan Africa, whether it's East or West or South, coming out of Latin America and the Caribbean in particular, who are all building as part of this new digital age, you know? And so I'm really hoping that the blockchain solutions that we see in the future that will likely facilitate our goods and services, or at least the back end delivery of our goods and services increasingly, you know, in five years, we may find that the majority of things that we currently use the internet for are operating on blockchain, right? So on internet 2.0, um, or even internet 3.0, which might be built on the blockchain, you know, I think it will begin to form the backbone, the backbone of digital goods and services going forward. But what I'd also like to see is you know, there is a chance for emerging economies to really take the lead in this space at this point in time, you know, um, in terms of shaping what that future looks like and the diverse array of solutions and, you know, digital technology that is reflective of everyone, not just those who live in the countries, you know, where the money sits uh, for that development to begin with. So. Can I just say as a conclusion, I'd really like to see a global redistribution of wealth, <laughs> but that's my optimistic side. <laughs> my pessimistic side is just looking at, look, the more places we can create access to wealth through, through blockchain-based payment applications across the Pacific Islands, East Africa, Southern Africa, and the Caribbean, the better. 
you know, that is my very, very specific focus going forward. And I think the community of people that I work with and that I have worked with in the development and humanitarian sector have a major role to play in, in being a, you know, like a good Samaritan counterweight to the pace of blockchain development that otherwise, you know, is at risk of being very much driven by big corporates uh, and governments. I think you're way too optimistic. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, this whole, uh, I think the whole system is rigged that way. I mean, I don't want to sound like an anarchist, but then uh, it, this, this is how the, the money works. And I think this is where blockchain technology is is providing access to, to so many people who are a part of such system. You talk about Nigeria, you talk about uh, uh, communities in uh, Sudan. And I mean, blockchain technology is proving to be a boon for them but mm -hmm. yeah that that's that's i think we have a, f a long way to go so great so now i would like to we have talked enough about blockchain we've talked enough about uh, these uh, solutions now i want to talk to you about you as as a women leader uh, mm -hmm. especially like you know an entrepreneur a ceo and how has your experience been in the male-dominated industry, in the tech sector, which is highly dominated by male talent? So what has your experience been so far? What an interesting question. Um, I, I have to say that I initially didn't think about, you know, myself as a woman up against, you know, the boys in the tech sector. But I did notice that in blockchain specifically, but I think in any sort of space where the technology you're talking about is still being creative, there is a thirst for different perspectives and opinions. You know, And that's where you see a lot of movements right now of women like me really encouraging young girls and women to get into technology as we are shaping this new future for ourselves, you know, because we can't wait for these op opportunities to be there. You know, we need to start stomping into and stomping around this space to, to start to make sure that diversity is part of the equation as these solutions are being built. So, you know, I haven't, I can't say that I've been badly treated, you know, or that I've been bullied. I can say that people are very surprised, you know, that here I am, you know, a brown girl with a big Afro and a woman, in addition to being a woman of color that is working in the blockchain space, you know, that is something, and who's based in Vanuatu, you know, all places. That is something that was enough, I think, to pique enough curiosity to give me access. But I think women should realize that the time is now and actually Looking back on history, now there is an enabling environment for women to finally get into this sector. And I think we should start to be hungry for it um, and to make sure that the future of this sector is balanced, you know, for the sake of our sisters and brothers and nieces. And I don't have children, but for our children. 
right? Um, yeah, great. Uh, so, and yeah. what advice? So, since you're talking about uh, new entrants in, in the uh, in the space, so what advice would you give to the new generation of uh, specifically uh, female leaders who who can see you as as one of the uh, inspiring stories and one of the leaders in the tech sector, which is highly dominated by male uh, uh, professionals? So, what advice would you give it, give them? Well, my first piece of advice would be, don't be afraid. Um, stay true to yourself and your voice. It's when you're being genuine and authentic that you believe in yourself most. Um, and if there is one thing we know about male-dominated sectors is that you need to own your position as a woman in the room, own your perspective as the unique perspective that you have, and project that as much as possible. You know, I think we as women are often taught to be small uh, or to be quiet, you know, or to be pretty. But the reality is if we don't start to speak up and speak out, you know, no matter what our profession, then we risk being under acknowledged, right? So I, I think now I really want to encourage young women to think about charging into the space, you know, rather than being invited in. Uh, and honestly, to realize that it's probably going to be a lot of hard work, you know, that none of us gets a free ride. Um, and to really try and think about, you know, when a woman, when a young woman getting into this space right now questions herself, you know, about if she should do something, I think thinking about your future self and thinking, well, if I was myself in five years, what's the memory that I would like to have about the choice that I'm making right now? Um, because we have opportunities to build our future in the countries where we have access to that. And in the countries that we don't, we now have digital tools. We have huge platforms for women's movements and voices that can reach out to our sisters elsewhere to make sure that we are standing up together, you know, to participate and to, be the builders, you know, that typically have been roles of males in the past. Uh, and honestly, for all the men out there that might have some doubts, I would just say the work, the output, the outcome, the products, the solutions, the tools will always be better for it. You know, a diverse team of skills, you know, skill sets, uh, a diverse team of multiple genders uh, and gender identities is always going to give you a better outcome. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure about it. And uh, skill development is, is one of the most important tools uh, that one can put to use to, you know, to, to sort of leapfrog into uh, the opportunities that this digital uh, economy is providing. So when someone is starting, especially a female founder, uh, a woman entrepreneur, uh, whenever they are trying to enter in the space, do you think, uh, what, what do you think are the most significant barriers for female leadership? Um, or what has been your personal experience? I mean, so I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I do have to say, you know, like as a female entrepreneur, my path is very recent, right? You know, I emerging impact was created a year and a half ago at this point. So I am very new to this space. And I do have to say that the majority of obstacles that I've had so far, thankfully, have been around self-doubt, 
uh, and have been around, honestly, dealing with imposter syndrome. So it's really me psyching myself out, you know? So I think being reminded that you can be your own worst enemy. What you should try and be is your own best friend in order to surmount that challenge and that barrier uh, is psychologically difficult, you know, in a society where many of us were raised with notions that we could never achieve this level or be in this industry or be in that position. Um, so just knowing to all the girls out there that it's all in your head, <laughs> you know, and that we should really stop being such harsh self-critics. The second obstacle, honestly, that I faced, I think has enriched my work a bit, but has also been difficult. So even though my entry into this space was characterized by the fact that, you know, I was based in Vanuatu and built this complex blockchain solution in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, my pathway, I think, in blockchain has meant a lot of late nights uh, and a lot less access, you know, to the type of learnings, conferences, face-to-face -face meetings that um, a lot of people don't realize that they have access to. You know, so I have been trying to look at ways where I can teach what I know and get learning in exchange, you know. Um, so doing a lot of networking and a lot of outreach to try and reconcile this gap that I have. But then also looking at that gap and thinking, well, if I'm in the environment where people don't have access to these types of things, then what types of solutions can we build to fill that gap? So it keeps me in this gap filling mentality as I do my work and as I try to identify honestly with people who need new services as opposed to people who have existing services has, has been both a challenge but, but also a gift. Um, and I guess also being very, very far away from my family, you know, has also been difficult throughout this. So, uh, that's more about the time of COVID, you know, but I think that you need to bear in mind that when you find your vision, you know, and your inspiration and you stick with it as an entrepreneur, it does mean that you have to steal yourself a little bit, you know, to acknowledge that you do make some sacrifices, but that ultimately, you know, you've got to keep your eyes on the prize the entire time and try as much as possible not to turn challenges into permanent obstacles, but just- no, Absolutely, I love road. it. I love, I love the way you've uh, put it. And I think um, since you have already entered the space, not just entered the space, you have uh, proved your mettle and uh, become the CEO of Emerging Impacts. And I'm pretty sure the journey must have been really tough and many late nights, as you've mentioned, and uh, you know, being far away from your loved ones and all, I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a, it's a part of the journey. But, uh, you know, what is more intriguing to me is that, you know, you recently started this journey and then now you are serving as as one of the most inspiring stories to to not just the female, uh, 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 you know, uh, female entrepreneurs or, or any any girl who's sitting in like a far remote corner of the world like Vanuatu you and wherein I'm pretty sure the the access to the information I don't know how 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 did you um, 
get access to all these resources. I'll be really thankful to you if you can help um, in sharing the resources that you accessed or or whatever uh, you know was helpful for you. Yeah, we can we can always mention it in the sure. in the show notes, and I'm I'm pretty sure that'll be that'll be really amazing. So my next question to you would be that you know this journey of of self doubt that you mentioned, how can a person um, or, or, or woman uh, entrepreneur, especially coming from, uh, like, especially uh, a, a woman of color, how do you think that, you know, what all self-talk do, do women need to do to push aside all the challenges, all the self that down there in their head and how they can, they can you know, come over, over this challenge and how they can be a success? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's a way of life, right? I'm not going to pretend like you can make these things disappear. I think it's something that we need to accept and invite in as part of us and, and be ready, you know? I mean, two things that I've learned is that really helped me to refocus, you know, and to calm down that self-critic, honestly, is meditation. It has saved my life, you know, because it's a tool that allows you to focus to reconnect with your body and to kind of get back to yourself in those moments when you might be psyching yourself out, you know? Um, and I think it's something that has really helped me along my journey. But the second one, which is huge, is that we stand together. You know, some of my best mentors and supporters throughout this entire journey have been other women that I wasn't afraid to draw in to my vision, right? In one way or another. Uh, and those are women that have continued to help me and still continue to help me along the way. So I think reminding, like there's always been a moment for any girl or woman that's listening that you're standing in a grocery store or you're standing somewhere else um, in any public space and you'll catch the eye of another woman you know, and there will be a communication between you. And I think that's something that we need to not forget. We shouldn't be afraid to ask our sisters for help. We shouldn't be afraid to learn from one another, you know, because ultimately those are the relatable stories that are going to inspire you and push you forward, especially if you're in a very male dominated sector, right? Um, but I've also had, you know, men along the way who have been massively supportive once you identify who they are, you should never let them go, you know, and of course, other friends with different non-binary gender identities who have supported me along the way. Um, but my husband, for example, has gone from Sandra anthropologist obsessed <laughs> with science fiction to ranting about Bitcoin to where I am now. He's a very patient man. <laughs> Um, and has always been supportive because he actually saw the physical change in me once I started to do what was inspiring me, you know. Um, and I also have to give a shout out to the co-founder of Emerging Impact, Robbie Greenfield. I mean, he was one of the first collaborators that I had from a big blockchain industry player consensus that saw what I was doing and who really believed in me and believed in that approach. You know, and that's how Emerging Impact was born, you know, so it always takes, we need to relativize a little bit and talk to others, you know, to get to where we're going. 
Um, but at the moments when you need to look internally, meditate and be silent to know how you represent yourself in front of those other people uh, and who you choose to draw in and collaborate with, those silent moments are also very necessary. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about uh, meditation because um, as a practitioner of meditation and yoga, I have also... Um, I've drawn immense value from, from this practice and it has helped me a lot. So I ab absolutely agree uh, with you on that. And so I'm pretty sure that, you know, this is, this is, of course, mm -hmm. you have to, it's your responsibility uh, as an individual, as a woman uh, to, to inspire your own self, motivate your own self. Right. So, and so to tell me an understanding, what is your motivation? Where do you derive it from? And, are there any women uh, uh, leaders or any other women figure that, that inspires you? And why is that? Hmm. That's, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. Um, so I guess what, like I genuinely believe what drives me, I genuinely believe that, you know, the way I grew up, in a multinational, multicultural household, you know, having part of the family from this privileged country of America and part of the family from a country that has a very complex and painful history, Rwanda, um, and being exposed to all of these cultures throughout growing up, really just, I never let go of that feeling that I was put here to make sure that there's always another path forward, right? That we can always get to where we're going and that ultimately every single thing I do is leaving the world better, you know, than when I got to it at that point in time. So I do feel that like drive to support people to rise up and build the future that they want and to try and see eye to eye with people throughout the process. You know, I love connecting with people with new places, you know, and new places and new languages and cultures, but I also enjoy that because I myself am multicultural. So I think there's something to be said for deriving your inspiration from something that is connected to who you are, you know, and how you were born. Uh, so, you know, I really believe that my work at Emerging Impact in five years will have changed the lives of not just thousands, which is where I'm at right now. I think I'm probably at like 35 or 40,000 people, you know, supported with unblocked cash, but that that can turn into millions, you know, um, and that they can be part of that process in doing that and building that. And in terms of, and this is where the connection is, right? So yesterday I was listening to um, the song Stand Up, which was from the most recent Hillary, um, Harriet Tubman movie. So Harriet Tubman, honestly, I remember being a child who had never lived in America reading about Harriet Tubman and her role in helping slaves escape and build the Underground Railroad. And when I was thinking about it yesterday, I was like, you know, if I really had to choose one female to follow and one female heroine that has turned struggle into a chance to create change and opportunity for others, it would be Harriet Tubman. Um, absolutely. I think she's a warrior. Um, she's somebody who stood against the odds 
the odds. And I even went so far yesterday as to ask myself, you know, whether emerging impact could be the underground railroad, you know, on the blockchain, right? Like, are we building kind of this underground populist railroad to accelerate people's access to wealth in a way that the, the structure of society that we have today has not given us, you know, and that's, I think about her all the time because she focused on building pathways to freedom and to change. Uh, and her legacy is timeless at this point in time. So yeah, I only just decided that yesterday. So, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've always struggled to kind of pick role models, but I no, really absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm so thankful that you thought about it yesterday. And today we, we are discussing about it. Isn't that wonderful? So, uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, you know, I cannot tell you how much am I, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation and I would love to talk to you more about things and, and, and your challenges and your journey and your work at Emerging Impacts. But then as we are running short on time, uh, my last question to you would be, is there anything else that that do you think that I have missed out on asking you or that you would like to share with our audience? Um, no, I mean, honestly, I think we've covered a lot. I guess, you know, I don't believe in giving advice to an audience without being available, you know, to receive the response to that advice. So I would say that I'm always ha happy for people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I do believe on women, not just women in tech, but, you know, young women, especially aspiring women, you know, women with ambition reaching out to each other to, to seek support, you know, and to seek guidance and empathy and, you know, a smile and a joke, whatever it might be, that's, that's something that I think benefits all of us, you know, so I do want to make it clear that I'm open to that. Uh, if you want to share my details or maybe my LinkedIn after this podcast, uh, that's totally okay. And I guess if at any other point in time you decide that you do want to talk more about the technical details of blockchain or maybe your audience ship may want to, um, then I can always get more into that nitty gritty, you know, of the application architecture and Absolutely. I would love to have you on the yeah. show again. And uh, uh, yeah, absolutely right. What I can do, I can mention your uh, contact details and your uh, LinkedIn profile on, in the show notes and we definitely mm -hmm. will get in touch with you. So thank you so much Excellent. for your time, uh, Sandra. I cannot tell you that how much I enjoyed this conversation and thank you for being a Shiro and the wonderful work that you're doing in this world. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sarah.